We are going to be in Exodus chapter 12 tonight. All right, Exodus chapter 12 tonight. We're going to start in verse 1 and read through verse 32. So you can follow along in your Bibles or you can follow along on the screen behind me. All right, so Exodus 12, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. You shall, not, you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborns in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel." On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared for you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on the very day I brought you your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all of the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover land. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of this house, of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statue for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, 
What do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as he has said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. <clears throat> so I've said it before, uh, but growing up in Southern California, uh, the first half of my life, I experienced quite a bit more of cultural diversity uh, than the second half of my life. Uh, if I go ahead and actually look back, um, uh, as, I, as I reflect, okay, you know, so I, I had quite a bit of diversity growing up, uh, both the elementary school and the middle schools that I attended. Uh, it was actually only about a third of the students looked like me. And, and when I say that, I, I mean that they were white Caucasian students. Uh, the particular schools that I went to, the school district that I was a part of, uh, about the other, another third would have been from the Latino community, and then another third was kind of everybody else, but a lot of my friends were uh, Vietnamese and Korean as well. So I grew up with a lot of diversity. To this day, if you were to ask me, hey, Justin, what was one of uh, the hardest years of your life? What was, you know, a time in your life where it just felt like, ah, you didn't almost want to get up out of bed in the morning? Uh, I would tell you it was the year that I was a youth pastor in Shreveport, Louisiana. This was a really, really hard year for me uh, because it was just, it was such a different culture than what I grew up with. Uh, I would say most of the people in Shreveport looked like me, and, and those that didn't look like me, um, most of them, again, weren't going to be Latino or uh, have Asian ancestors, but they were going to be African American. And the church that I worked at, uh, even though they were a church of Jesus Christ, and even though they were certainly trying to do a lot of good things in the community, they couldn't help but see their own prejudices. Uh, they couldn't help but see the way that uh, they necessarily isolated people that, frankly, looked different from us. And I spent the better part of a year trying to call some of this out. I spent the better part of a year, uh, not necessarily in the nicest and kindest way, trying to show them their mistakes. And uh, again, if you were to say, hey, describe that word, or describe that year in one word for yourself, I would say it felt like I was in exile. I felt like I was in a different land with different people who ate different food, listened to different music, had different values, uh, practiced, frankly, a different religion. It felt like I was so out of my element, and it was probably one of the hardest years of my life. Again, if I were to describe it in one word, it felt like exile. Now, I think I could ask each and every one of you, especially those of us who have lived a little bit of life, hey, have you ever had a season of life that felt like an exile? 
I'm imagining every single one of us would have some kind of an answer. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, maybe it wasn't a particular geographic region you went to, but maybe there was a season where you just had the toughest boss in the world, and you couldn't relate to them, and you almost just didn't want to go to work in the morning. Perhaps, and I hope this isn't true for all of us, but perhaps home, for whatever reason, for whatever is going on in life, uh, home doesn't even feel like home anymore. Uh, home almost feels like exile. Whether it's work, whether it's home, whether it's relationships to where you lost friends that you thought were friends, or whatever it is, uh, if you have ever experienced what we can describe as exile, feeling lonely, feeling like you did not have a place where you are intimately aware that the world was not as it should be. You are not alone. You see, the history of the people of God, in many ways, we can describe our history as one of exile. Now, the story that we've been looking at, that we've been reading through for uh, the last couple of weeks now, the story of the Exodus, we really can, and I think rightfully, rightfully so, say that the people of God, they're at least in a type of exile. Now, they're in the land of Egypt, and we know if you're familiar with biblical terms, the exile is going to happen much later, uh, but they certainly are in a type of exile. They're in a land that's foreign to them. They're being mistreated. Uh, every single day, you can imagine, they almost don't want to get up and get out of bed. But the whole story kicks off with a cry, and God hears their cries. For those of us who ever have, for those of us who I would say if we haven't yet, we certainly will experience a season, a time, a year, an event of life where we will feel like we were in our own version of exile. The Word of God has encouragement for us, and I believe we learn this in Exodus chapter 12. God will redeem us from our exile by the blood of the Lamb. God will redeem us from our exile by the blood of the Lamb. And so this evening, we're going to look at three points. We're going to look at the cry of justice. We're going to look at the cost of forgetfulness. And we're going to look at the blood of the Lamb. The cry of justice, the cost of forgetfulness, and the blood of the Lamb. So there was a news story, uh, I think it was about a year ago, that this story actually got uh, most of the headlines and had a lot of news. Uh, it was the story of Jake Patterson. When I just say that one name, does anybody know who I'm referring to? Jake Patterson, I believe it was around fall of 2018, uh, decided for whatever reason in his mind, in his brain, that he wanted to uh, kidnap a young girl. And so he uh, followed a girl around. This is kind of in rural Wisconsin and uh, saw where she lived and saw that she was an only child. And he came up with this really evil plan. Um, and it's kind of a scary story, but uh, at 13 years old, again, he went in, killed both of her parents, then kidnapped her, and held her hostage for uh, a number of months. I'm not even sure hostage is the right word. He just, he just kidnapped her for a number of months. I remember reading this story and just thinking, what an awful person. Who could possibly do such a thing? Uh, and then eventually Jamie escapes. I believe this was actually January this year. She escapes, and Jamie's doing as okay as one can do after going through such, um, such a hard time. Well, the trial actually went really quick for Jake Patterson. He ended up being sentenced to life in prison. 
And of all the stories in the world that I could be telling you today, I'm telling you this one, because actually when I was reading the news today, his name came up yet again, well after the fact of his sentencing. And the news story was actually a story about how he recently got beat up in prison, and how there actually recently uh, was a video of it. And a lot of times I hear something like that and I want to scroll through it. But I was so bothered by this guy and I, just how disgusting what he did and how I wanted justice for this little girl who I didn't even know. Uh, I pulled up the article and I watched the video of him getting in this fight and, and I, I kind of wanted more. Uh, I wish that he got hurt worse than he did in the brief, you know, snippet of this prison fight that I saw. Because I long for justice. And again, I think in every single one of our hearts, if we've ever kind of had this thought like, man, how could somebody do that? I hope they deserve what they get. Again, there's something in the human spirit, in the human nature, when wrong is being done, when evil is being practiced, we have this longing for justice. We want to see justice satisfied. We want to see wrongs uh, made right. And the whole story of the Exodus, if we remember, this whole thing kicks off with a cry for justice. It's God's people. They cry out for justice. Lord, we are being mistreated. We are being, we are being beaten. We are being taken advantage of. We need justice. And they cry out to God. And again, if I want to see worse done to Jake Patterson for a child that I will never know and I'll probably never ever meet or interact with, how much more so does God long for justice for his child? Because remember, as we've been reading through the story of Exodus, uh, Israel is, they're, they're finding their identity. They're finding who they are. They're finding out what matters in the world and, and, and how special they truly are. They're so special that if you remember a few weeks ago, we saw that God himself names all of his people his children. He says that Israel is my firstborn son as a uh, corporate entity. So, uh, here's the thing. We've arrived. We've arrived at this place in Scripture where potentially we see divine justice being enacted upon the Egyptians. So, God sends the destroyer to kill the firstborn of all the Egyptians. And I think very necessarily so, we can maybe at some point in our hearts ask the question, well, is this actually just? Is this actually right? How can God do something like that? Well, here's the thing that I want to say, and I tell that story to kind of set up this first point. If there's some part of us, if there's some part of you that even heard the story about, you know, uh, uh, Jamie um, and then this bad guy, Jake Patterson, and again, you wanted justice, if we who, who are so narrow-minded, and I don't mean that in like the, the political sense, but, but us who we cannot see down the corridors of time and the corridors of history, if we can look at an abuse and long for justice, how much more so can the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? You see, that's one of the things that we see about the character of God throughout all of Scripture. I believe it's lifted up, I believe it's highlighted here in the Exodus story. But we see throughout all of Scripture, God will have justice for the wrongs that are done. He will have justice for the wrongs that are done. And here's where this is unique, and then here's where uh, I believe Exodus 12 is actually really relevant for us today. 
because God will have justice for the wrongs that are being done. On the one hand, that certainly should encourage us, and yes, for the wrongs that have been done to us in this life, uh, one day those will be made right and justice will be satisfied. But if we're really honest about ourselves and our heart and the way that we have lived our lives, we know that that means we are sentenced to God's justice as well. In God's justice, if we look throughout the rest of Scripture, we are told that committing treason against the high king, a.k.a. sin, because we have sinned in thought, word, and deed, we are guilty. And if you are guilty before God, the only penalty that is due, the only thing that will satisfy divine justice is death. Death. And so that's what's at stake here. That's what's at stake for the Egyptians. They have offended a good God by harming his child. But in reality, and the people of God, they don't know exactly how all of this is going to come out. They don't know all of God's values yet. They're going to learn a lot more about God's laws and God's penalties, and they're going to learn more of those here in the next few chapters. But here's the truth of the matter. Even for God's people back in this ancient time, the one who need to be rescued, the one who need to be saved, even for them, justice still needs to be satisfied. And so God provides a way. He provides a way that uh, justice can both be satisfied and uh, that the Egyptians can get to them what they deserve. And so how does he do that? Well, we know the story. He provides a lamb. You see, going all the way back to Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, we are told that God is going to redeem his people, but it's actually going to be more than just redemption. Uh, he talks about it with great hands and uh, with my mighty hand and then with signs and wonders. I'm going to redeem my people. We understand the plagues. But again, why does a substitute need to be put in place for God's people besides the fact that he's done wrong? Well, in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, he actually says, not only am I going to redeem my people and save them from the situation that they're in, but I am going to reshape them. I'm going to reform them. I am going to claim them and make them my people. They don't know everything that I care about and value yet, but I do, so I must provide for them. And so God does. We could read the rest of the Old Testament, and we know uh, that in the, Le the Levitical system, when you have this precious lamb uh, that is perfect and without blemish, we know that in its blood it contains life, and divine justice demands life for the wrongs that we have done, so that when this lamb is sacrificed, when the blood is put on the doors, we are told that God will be appeased. The lamb substitutes for the wrong that the people of God did. Divine justice is satisfied, and the people of God can be okay with the Lord. And so we see that's exactly how this plays out. The horrible event happens, the tenth plague, the destroyer, he comes in, and we read, and we read there in Exodus chapter 12, there's this horrible cry throughout the land of Egypt that there never has been since. And there's this one verse that I think we could read over really, really quickly. It's verse 30, but it says this. Verse 30, And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all of his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. There was not a house where someone was not dead. You see, 
Throughout all of the plagues, God has had no problem distinguishing between his people, the Israelites, the Hebrews, and the Egyptians. Uh, He's able to uh, punish the Egyptians with the plagues while extending mercy to his people who are not experiencing the plagues. But notice the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, it's different. In every house in Egypt, including the house of the Hebrews themselves, there was someone who is dead. But the Egyptians wake up to find the death of their firstborn child, and the Israelites praise and worship God because it was only the death of the lamb. The lamb was sacrificed that their firstborn may not have to have been sacrificed. The Israelites cry for justice, and we see as God acts on behalf of his people and we learn who he is, he will have justice for wrongs done, including the wrongs that we have done. You see, for divine justice to be satisfied, only a lamb can do this. Our longing for justice, I do want to just say it again, it is a good thing. In fact, and you've heard me say this before from up here, but but our longing for justice when we see wrong and evil in the world, there's something to that. And I believe Scripture describes it as this, we are made in the image of God. And so when we want to have justice satisfied, that is a good thing. That is something we should continue to pray for. That is something we should continue to long to see executed in our own communities, in our own households even. And while we should long and pray for these things, it should also humble us and it should also sober us. We too have practiced treason. We too have practiced crimes. We too have done things that we wish that we didn't. And even for the wrongs that we have done, God will have justice. That's our first point. We look at the cry of justice that the Lord of hosts himself certainly will answer. Point number two, we look at the cost of forgetfulness. Now, we've talked about this for a while, but here up to this point, uh, this is it. This is the Exodus. God finishes off with the 10th plague, and then uh, at least the title here in my Bible, uh, verses 33 and on, we're told that God's redemption that he's been promising for so long, it finally is being enacted. Pharaoh finally says, okay, this is it. Take your people, take everything, your livestock, take our gold, take our money, go, 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 be gone. God has finally delivered his people. And again, uh, God's identity is necessarily tied to his actions on our behalf. And so God wants his people to remember. He wants them to remember this moment, this moment of redemption, this moment of grace, this moment of love, this, this moment of God's acting on behalf of his people. And so we read, this is actually really, really important for the people of God. Uh, verses 1 and 2, God says, hey, uh, your whole lives are going to orient around uh, this moment. Your calendar year, it's going to begin right here and right now, uh, that every single new year, you will begin by remembering how I acted on your behalf. Verse 14, this is to be a memorial that uh, it's talked about forever, a statute that all of your people to have. And then frankly, verses 26 and 27 God makes it kind of clear. Talk to your kids about him. Talk to your kids about the Lord. 
You see, he establishes this Passover meal, and it's something that the people of God were to practice every single year. It's something that they were, was to become a habit. It was something that was to be a religious ritual. But can't you see, it's supposed to be so much more than just a ritual. As the people are obedient, uh, as they celebrate the Passover, as they remember the works of the Lord, they remember who God is. And not only do they remember who God is, but they remember who God says that they are. And not only do they remember who God says they are, but they remember the mission that God calls them to. But do the people do this? Do they remember how God acted on their behalf? Do they remember who God is, who God calls them, and who God calls them to be? No, if we read the rest of the story, we read that they forget Throughout the times of the judges, before the people of God get a king, they forget. They forget who God is. And then because they forget who God is, they forget who they are. And as they forget who they are, they forget their mission. And so they rebel against the Lord again and again and again. And throughout the time of judges, even though it's in their own land, their own home, where do the people of Israel find themselves? Yet again, in a place of exile. Even though they're in their own home, their own lands, now it's these foreign people that are taking over and calling the shots, and that was not the way that it was supposed to be. And time will go on, and eventually the people will cry out and say, they want a king to lead them just like the rest of the nations so that they could be like everybody else, and they forgot. They forgot that Yahweh is supposed to be their king. But God condescends to them, and God gives them a king, and God gives specific orders to the king, lead the people with justice and righteousness the way that I am both uh, just and righteous. Lead my people well. Remember who I am. Remember who I say you are. Remember what I've called you to. But Israel's kings forget. Israel's kings continue to rebel against the Lord. Israel's kings, uh, they begin to practice the foreign uh, worship that the nations around them are. We even see some of Israel's kings, they go so far in their forgetfulness that as an act of worship, not to Yahweh, but to a foreign pagan god, some kings will go on to sacrifice their children as an act of worship to these other gods. Israel's kings forget. And eventually, we see the cost of forgetfulness. And no longer will it be an exile in their own home, but it will be yet again another exile. You see, that's eventually what happens uh, nearing the end of the Old Testament. Before uh, the northern kingdom, Israel, uh, they will be brought into captivity. They will be brought into exile by the Assyrians in the north. And then sometime later, down in the south, the kingdom of Judah, the rest of God's people, those who in some ways were holding out hope, some of them were holding out faithfulness, they too forget and then are brought back into exile. See, here's the thing. The stuff that we do, the religious practices that we go through, whether it be communion as we're going to uh, later this evening, whether it be coming to church and worshiping the Lord, uh, I, I get the tendency. I get the tendency to make our religious practices something that's rote, something that's what we do. We go through the motions. But all throughout Scripture, we can see that, hey, the things that we do, the way that we practice uh, our religion, our worship to God, 
It never is supposed to be rote. The problem is not with the practice. The problem is with our own hearts. We forget. So the very things that we do, it's to remind us. It's to help us remember who God is and what God has done for us. You see, for the Israelites, it actually took uh, this exile. A payment had to be made for the wrongs that they did, for their forgetfulness. They kept forgetting again and again and again. And then they end up in these foreign lands, separated from, again, what they knew, what was comfortable, the way that they wanted to worship, the songs that they sang, the food that they ate. They probably even lost a lot of family during all this time. Yet it's during this time, it's in the exile, that we see the people of God begin to hope again. You see, if we look at the history, once really we get kind of past Solomon, uh, Solomon up until the exile, man, the people of God have gone astray for a long time. We get some good kings every now and then, and we get some good spiritual reforms every now and then, but for the most part, we're talking about a few hundred years uh, of the people rebelling against the Lord against the people completely forgetting that they even have Scripture uh, to look to if they want to know who the Lord is. And in the midst of all of this, sure, the people were going through some of the passages. In fact, when God sends the prophets to people, when I say they're going through the passages, they were still performing some of the rituals. Dare I say, some of them, they probably continue to practice the Passover. Look, our God is the only God. Look, our God is the God who saved us. Let's worship him by eating this Passover meal, and then we'll go offer a child to Baal. Let's worship him while we have this Passover meal, and then we'll go commit this awful, atrocious act in the name of Asherah. We could keep going on, but this was the practice. And so they needed to wake up. They needed to remember. So really, kind of the second half of the prophets that we see in the Old Testament we see that there begins to be this language of hope. We begin to see that there's this message of hope that for the people of God who have forgotten, for the people of God who are in exile, literally again, the people of God who they have a ton in common with their ancestors, the Egyptians, we see that they start crying out again. We see that they they call for justice. God, yes, we have done wrong, but God, we are being mistreated. Yes, we have done wrong, but we repent of the wrong that we have done. God, will you deliver us? They start to hope. They hope for a prophet like Moses. They hope for a king like David, and they hope for a priest that's greater than Aaron. They start to hope. We can learn from them. I think there's much that we can learn from the people of God who have forgotten. But may we remember, again, whether it's being here at church and hearing, I believe there's something actually is really spiritual that happens uh, when we gather together. Jesus himself says, when two or three gather together, I am present amongst them. I believe there's actually something really spiritual that happens when you hear the preaching of God's word. I believe there's something really spiritual that happens when together we, we say a prayer of confession and we know that we are limping and struggling and all in our own versions of exiles together. The things that we do, may they not become rote. We don't do them just to do them. We don't do them to appease God. We do them that we may remember, that we may remember how good God is and how God has acted on behalf of us. And he has acted on behalf of us. 
because he has given us the blood of the Lamb. Our final point. So, we know the way that the rest of the Old Testament story goes. Eventually, the people of God, uh, they will pay the penalty for what they have done for their rebellion against the Lord, and God will restore them. He'll restore their fortunes. He'll restore their city. He'll bring them back. Now, exactly when we want to say, here was the end of exile, it just depends. What marker do we want to choose? Uh, is it when the first wave of people start to come back? Is it the second wave? Is it when Nehemiah himself uh, builds the walls? So as I've been kind of looking to this, we can't give, per se, an exact date. That is, we don't know the exact year where the walls were completely finished. It only took Nehemiah and his crew 52 days to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem that were torn down by the Babylonians. We don't know the exact year, but we have a time frame. It was likely done sometime in between 445, which is when the book of Nehemiah begins, and then 423. Some of this is speculation, and some of this is conjecture. But right at the very end here, right at the very end of Exodus chapter 12, and we didn't get to that, um, but we read that the people, I'm in verse 40, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of that 430 years, on the very day, all of the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt, uh, and the text goes on. We don't know exactly when Nehemiah built the walls, but many biblical scholars want to look to um, the building of the walls and saying, okay, this is officially it. This is officially when we can look back and say that uh, the exile was over, and potentially that year was 430. The Hebrews spent 430 years in exile. The, the exile later on finally ends, and now the people of God will hope for 430 years until as we are about ready to begin to learn about and know about more, until Jesus is born. So, here's the thing. That next 430 years for the people of God, it's not going to be the easiest 430 years. I don't have all the years memorized, and I can't tell the exact, you know, times when it happens, but first the Greeks come in. Alexander the Great, he wants to conquer the entire world, and so on his way to conquering the entire world, he must pass through the land of Canaan, the land of Israel that the people have finally got back, and he'll go ahead and do that. Then as we know through history, Alexander the Great dies, the rest of the world gets divided up into his four kingdoms, eventually the Greeks are not the world power, the Romans are the world power, and the Romans will come and they'll settle in Jerusalem. And that's kind of the setting that the people of God uh, are living in when Jesus is born. Now this isn't me, I didn't come up with this kind of imaginative illustration. It's another pastor, but I can't help but saying, like, oh man, this is really helpful when we think about the perspective. So imagine you're a parent, imagine you're a child, whatever it may be, uh, at the time when Jesus is born. Part of your religion uh, that you practice is you travel to Jerusalem fairly regularly to worship God. And as you worship God, you're, you're being told that, hey, you are the inheritor of this amazing story. God has uniquely blessed you and your people more than all of the other nations of the world that you may bless them richly and they may come to know who God is. You are told that you are special, that you are chosen. 
You are told that all of your enemies will actually be destroyed. You are told uh, that, uh, again, the whole world will come to know who God is uh, because of the work that you are doing. And then as you're going to the temple to learn these things and to worship and to offer sacrifices, you look off to your left, and there's a giant tower, there's a giant um, fortress that's built, uh, and the Romans built their fortress just a little bit higher than the temple of the people of God so that they would know they are in subjugation to the Romans. See, the people of God in the time of Jesus... um, they still are in a time of exile, right? Uh, they're not away in a foreign land. Uh, they're not, you know, off in Babylon or Assyria or Egypt. They're not, you know, being experiencing that type of persecution from the enemies of the people of God. But they are in an exile, are they not? They've been hoping for justice for a long time. They know that the God that they worship, that they believe in, that they sacrifice to, they know that He hears the cry of those who long for justice. But where is He? What is God doing? And then we know that all of history changes. You see, there's a final prophet Uh, He's actually working, and he's actually has a pretty uh, well-known ministry by the time Jesus is getting ready to take off. We know his name. His name is John the Baptist. And what's the first thing that this final prophet says when he looks and he sees Jesus? John 1.29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, kind of trying to bring some of this together. You see, the people of God, they learned that God is a God who absolutely will satisfy justice, who will make wrongs right. This is what He does. In the Exodus, in the Old Testament, uh, in this tenth plague, He certainly did that by punishing the Egyptians and providing a lamb for the people of God that they and their households may be spared and they may know who the Lord is. But they forgot. They forgot who the Lord is. They forgot to pass on their faith and their religion to their children, and it just kept getting worse generation after generation after generation. And it took something big. It took something monumental. It took the people of God to be at the end of their rope for them to try to start seeking God again, for them to try to start hoping in God again. You see, they needed a lamb again, somebody that would spare them, something that would redeem them but a lamb perhaps bigger and greater than just the one that would redeem Israel, Israel alone. And I think it's actually incredibly significant when John the Baptist looks upon Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Because we could read the end of Isaiah. We could look through Ezekiel. We could look at the messages of the prophets. And I know Isaiah actually wrote this, you know, long before the Babylonian exile. However, he's looking to a future date, at least in the second half. And Ezekiel is writing during the Babylonian uh, exile, right? And they're writing and they're saying one day there's going to be this prophet, priest, and king, the Lord's anointed. He's going to show up. And it's not just going to be for us but He is going to redeem everyone. His sacrifice will be enough that Assyria will be invited to the table of God, the bad guys up in the north. That Egypt, the bad guys down in the south, they will be welcome to sit at the table in Jerusalem. 
And John the Baptist sees the fulfillment of all the hope of the people of God from the time of the Exodus to their present time when he looks at Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Just as the people of God needed a perfect and spotless Lamb to cover for their sins in this one moment, Jesus, we are told, is God's perfect and spotless Lamb, and we can see that where we have committed injustices and therefore uh, are ourselves um, guilty and needing divine justice, Jesus Christ is perfect, never did. Yet Jesus Christ is able to represent us. Scripture will go on in other places, and what it will talk about is that Jesus himself, he is the propitiation, he is the substitution for us. On the cross, the death that we deserved, he experienced. And as his, uh, as his blood was shed, remember Leviticus 17, there's life in the blood, we may now experience life because the Lamb of, the God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world has come. You see, for all of our exiles that we may experience, whether it's work, whether it's home, um, whether it's we're under the hardship of a boss, whatever it may be, the hope that Scripture gives us in Exodus 12 that is ultimately fulfilled later in Jesus Christ, the thing that we are to know is this, God will redeem us from our exile by the blood of the Lamb. And don't we see how even today the Scriptures are being fulfilled? Now, we're not actually Assyria, we're not actually Egypt, but the point is this, those who were once enemies of God are welcome now to the table of God because the Lamb's blood was shed on their behalf. And us today in exile, though we are, uh, each in our own ways and whatnot, because of the shed blood of the Lamb, we are welcome to the table of God because of what Jesus has done. Jesus is the truer and greater lamb that we so desperately need to save us, to save us from the exiles we experience in life. Jesus is God's lamb. God will redeem us from our exile by the blood of the lamb. And because of the work of Jesus, may we know the family that we have been brought into.